Well, we are coming off of our Christmas high. Some of you are getting ready to return to the office, back to work. Some of you are getting ready to return back to school. I think often of the line in the Christmas hymn that we sing, Long lay the world in sin and error pining. But then Christ appeared, and this thrill of hope and the worry, weary world rejoices. The weary world rejoices. I think some of us feel that way, especially coming to the end of a holiday like this. Some uh, joy from being together with family and some weariness as well. Weariness that is burdensome to the entire world. A weariness that maybe weighs down your heart uh, within you. And as we look at the world around us as well, more broadly, not just in our own community, we do see a deep weariness. I think of the fact that fighting and conflict, armed conflict, continues at many places in the world. In Scripture, several times in the Old Testament, one of the greatest promises that we have there is uh, in the day of the Lord, this future day that the prophets have told us about, all wars will end. There will finally be a peace that concludes every war. Uh, the prophets tell us that the weapons of war will be refashioned into tools for productivity. Swords will be turned into plows. Spears will be turned into hooks to bring fruit down from the trees. And as we look forward to that day, we're told as well, the nations will not train soldiers anymore. Can you imagine every nation freeing themselves of the, the, the great debt that comes from defense spending. I know that means something a little different to us than it does for others, but I hope that you can hope for peacetime, for a great peace that will free us from the, the weariness of fighting. I love this Christmas story of peace, one of my one of my favorite stories of peace. Uh, in 1914, our world, especially the European nations, descended into chaos. In August of 1914, the, the major European countries were at each other's throats, and they fell into a conflict, unbeknownst to them, that would last for four years and take the lives of some 10 to 15 million people. They thought it would last a month. <laughs> The major uh, armies, the major uh, nations involved thought that they would be done within the month. They had plans. France and Germany both had plans. They thought they could eliminate their enemies before the end of the month. Of course, it wore on. And by the end of that year, December of 1914, uh, hope was beginning to dwindle. Maybe you know this story. It's one that is so surprising. Christmas Eve, 1914... Uh, soldiers, we, we have this in diaries, we have this in, in letters from soldiers who were involved in the conflict. They, had, they were entrenched, they had these, these deep trenches that were sometimes very close to the enemy, just 30 yards across. And they could hear each other speaking. In fact, they would yell insults across to each other oftentimes. But on Christmas Eve, they heard each other singing. They heard each other singing Christmas songs. 
hymns and carols. And uh, they began to kind of cautiously yell across to each other, hey, if you don't shoot, we won't shoot. <laughs> and other things as well. Uh, many of the soldiers write, you know, hey, we'll offer you cigarettes in exchange for a bottle <laughs> if you'll just meet us in the middle. And so they kind of cautiously, tentatively began to, to you know, come out from these trenches. And they met in this no man's land, this area in between the two that was a place of death. They actually, in some of these instances, they gave each other uh, the ability to clean up the bodies, to move them out of the way. But then they spent time together. The, the two enemy armies, the Belgians, Germans, French, uh, the British, a number of them came across and celebrated Christmas together for almost a day and a half in some instances. It's very surprising. A peace that breaks conflict, a peace that overcomes war. This is not what we're used to hearing, and so this story stands out. In fact, it's one of the few instances that anything like this has ever happened. It even made headlines, peace breaks into war. Well, in our passage today, we're in James chapter 4 in Scripture. If you have a Bible or some way to access Scripture, you can turn there. James is going to talk to us about conflict about war. He's been speaking about peace. Now he's going to talk about war. But he's, he's, telling, he's telling the believers about war so that they can find the source of it and root it out, root out conflicts. He says, James chapter 4, starting in verse 1, what causes quarrels or wars? And what causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. In this passage, James speaks about the causes of conflict and then the wreckage of conflict, the carnage that it creates. In fact, that's going to be the outline for our text today. First, what is the source of this conflict? And then what are the outcomes of conflict, both in terms of human cost and spiritual cost in our lives? So first, James points out the causes of conflict. He begins with a question that we should all be concerned about. What causes conflicts between us? What causes fighting amongst us? Every thoughtful person must ask this, both as we look out at the world in terms of armed conflict, but also as we look at our own lives. Here we are at the turn of a year, and probably some of us can look back and say last year was a year of trouble, not one of peace, but one of deep deep conflict in my own life, arguments, fighting. How do we get to this place and why are we still fighting about the same things, not just on the international scale but on the personal scale? We are weary with fighting. 
and troubled by the same things that have troubled us over and over again. And so we should ask, what causes conflicts among us? This is the, 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 the question that James asks here, how he kicks off this passage. And he says, uh, as he's talking about this, he says, what causes quarrels and fights? The word for quarrels there is a word that always means wars. Uh, my translation here has quarrels. They're trying to help us because it is sort of a metaphor. But uh, it, it's a word that means war. <laughs> armed conflict in every instance it's it, it's it's to point us to in some ways uh this is a hyperbole an exaggeration it's to point us to the seriousness of our own fighting our own arguments and interpersonal conflicts james wants us not to think that we make too much of fighting but that we make too little of it we need to, to be sober about the fact that the same root cause of international war and international conflict is the root cause of sin and sinful arguments between us and others, fightings between us and the people around us. Don't underestimate the seriousness of your own argumentation, your own quarrels and fighting. The root cause of both war and argument is the same. So think of it like this. When we look around us at the world and we see conflict in Ukraine, for instance, one that's so frequently in front of us, we shouldn't think oh, how, how terrible that is. Uh, we should see that as a mirror for ourselves and say how terrible my own fighting is. If left to myself, the same, it's the same consequences that will come from my fighting destruction broken relationships the apparently small squabbles among us grow from the same root that destroys countries in war don't underestimate it or treat it as a small problem and if you were to answer this question where does fighting come from i wonder how you would answer it <clears throat> We do ask this a lot. Uh, if you're in HR, <laughs> you have to be asking this some. Uh, what's the root of these problems amongst us? If you're a parent, you're asking this question for sure. What is the cause of this sibling rivalry, this trouble between my own children? Think of the answers that we're accustomed to hearing. Maybe you overhear an argument, coworkers in the office, you catch up with that coworker later and say, Hey, what happened? Uh, you're probably going to hear something like, he made me so mad. <laughs> he made me so mad. So we have the beginnings of an answer here. How do we answer this? What causes conflicts among us? Well, this answer is the people around me, uh, the circumstances that I'm in, perhaps. Again, uh, to jump back to parents with their own children, you go in to break up uh, a little fight between the kids, and what do you hear? Well, he broke my phone. Well, she took my toy. Again, we're, we're, we're kind of opening up. What do we think the answer is to this question? What causes conflict? Well, it's, it's these circumstances that I'm in, the people around me. The most common answer to this question is it's something just right around me in my own circumstances or the people who are around me. But James's answer offers us something of a surprise here, I think. The problem is not outside of you, people or circumstances. The problem is inside of you. It's your own desires. 
It's your own desires. Look again at verse 1. What causes quarrels, James says? Is it not this? That your passions or your desires or your pleasures are at war within you. The surprising answer from James is the source of conflict and fighting is your own desires. It's not outside you. The cause is within you. James uses the word pleasures here. Again, our translations like to go awry because it seems odd to say pleasures. Uh, Some of your translations I know do say that. Uh, The point is it's a set of internal desires, things that we want. The Bible uh, gives us many examples of pleasure. And here's something to note. Pleasure is not all bad. Did you expect to hear that from the preacher? (laughs) Pleasure is not all bad. The Bible's very clear on that, in fact. Uh, We go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible in creation. In the very first chapter of the Bible, we're told six times that God created everything. And that as he looked at it and observed it, he says, this is good. This is good. And as the capstone to creation, he looks around and he says, this is very good. The things that he created, he doesn't doesn't denigrate. He says, all this around us is, in fact, is good. And when we see uh, the believers in Scripture reflecting on what God's created, for instance, Psalm 104, we read... Their, their reflections are that these things, these good things he's given us are to be enjoyed. Psalm 104, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. The psalmist looks around, he's just, he's looking almost exactly at creation as we see it in Genesis 1. He says, each of these things were created for our pleasure, for us to enjoy. Paul says, it comes to the same conclusion in 1 Timothy 4. He says, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. We can and should enjoy the good things that God has given to us. We can take pleasure in them. We should give, give thanks to God for them. Not all pleasures are bad. In fact, they can often be good. So what makes these potentially good desires go bad? I think that's the, the question we should be asking ourselves. Again, James offers us an answer here at the end of verse 1. He describes these pleasures as being at war within us. He says, isn't, isn't this the cause? To, look here. The source is... Your pleasures are at war within you. Literally, they're at war within our members. Our desires are pictured as waging war inside of us. And we have to get this right. This is an image that we have as modern people that we sometimes read into Scripture that's not right here. He's not saying you have good desires and bad desires within you, like the good angel and the bad demon both whispering to you, warring within you. That's not what he's after here. He's, he's speaking of our desires as if they are an army gathered within us, mustered for battle. Our internal desires are so strong that we are willing to go to war to get what we want. And let me show you this in the text. Uh, when Aaron preached last on uh, the end of chapter 3 there, we ended with this verse, uh, a harvest of righteousness 
is sown in peace by those who make peace. People are making peace, he says. If they have the wisdom from above, someone who has God's wisdom will be the kind of person who creates peace around them. But then in our passage, he goes to the other extreme. We're moving from peace into war. He says, what causes wars and fighting among you? It's that your own desires are warring within you. They are at war in you. It's, it's, again, it's like a group of soldiers gathered together who are all ready to enter into battle. And it's important to note here that James is talking not, not to individuals. This is, we kind of miss this in our English translations because most of our translations, well, probably all of them, don't say y'all. But that's what's being said here. This is to you, plural. Throughout this whole passage, it's, it's to you, plural, not to individuals. So let me reread this with that, uh, with that in here. What causes wars and fighting among you all? Is it not this, that you all's desires are at war among you all, among the whole group of you? This is sad. This is really sad because James is writing to a group of scattered believers. He's not just writing to one church, like maybe one troubled church. (laughs) He's writing to churches all across, he says, kind of scattered across a large area. And all these churches, he can look into and say, you all are in conflict with each other. I know that there are troubles among you. This is not an internal battle of desire within one person. This is a battle of warring desires between multiple people all over the place. Each person has an army of desires within them that is prepared to make war with the desires of the person right next to them. That's what he's saying. For the person with wisdom in 318, they are in peacetime. And so they want to continue making peace. But for the person who is fighting, their desires are warring within them, gathered for battle, ready to make war. They have become ruled by these desires. And when there are two or more armies ready to fight, it will not be long before conflict breaks out to get what they want. Instead of being willing to make peace, they make war. And this group of people have, I think we can think of it like this, desires that have become demands. Desires that have become demands. And the other thing we notice about these desires is that they're self-seeking. Just listen to James's words here. Your desires are at war within you all. You all desire and do not have. You all covet, he says in verse 2. You, you, you. The focus, if you listen throughout this passage, is this kind of repetitive note. He keeps saying, you desire, you want this. It's all about you. It's your self-seeking desires. That's what makes our pleasures go wrong, is that our desires become demands, and they are focused on seeking for ourselves. So we should use these verses like a mirror. James tells us in chapter 1, Scripture is meant to be like a mirror. Don't, don't, don't walk up to the mirror and then see yourself and make no changes. <laughs> Scripture is meant to reveal ourselves to ourselves. So when we come to a passage like this, we, we should ask, all right, what do I do with this information? So you're saying the problem that causes this fighting isn't outside of me, it's inside of me. It's not the people around me, 
It's my own desires. So what do I do with this information? Well, we should ask ourselves a series of questions. Turn, turn these verses back towards yourself. Ask, if it's my own desires that are setting me up for conflict, what is it that I want? What is it that I want? What are my desires in this situation? Dig down deep. Don't settle for simple answers. This is a great question for parents to ask of, of children. Don't, don't just stop by, uh, don't conclude an argument by saying, hey, stop yelling, stop hitting your sibling, stop taking their stuff, say sorry. It's so easy to do that. Or to do that with, uh, with friends when we see them in conflict with each other. Can't you guys just say sorry? <laughs> well, yeah, you could, but you're not getting at the root problems. Ask these questions. What is it that you want? What are your desires in this situation? Uncover the self-seeking desires and you'll be getting towards the root of the problem. And secondly, ask, why do you want it so badly? Or ask yourself, why do I want this so badly? Why am I willing to go to war, to use James's language, in order to get what I want here? What has made this desire so important to me that I will demand it of my coworker, my spouse? my parent. Ask these questions of yourself. It may be a bit presumptuous to say this, especially at the beginning of the year, but I think this may be one of the most important lessons we learned this year. Don't stop at superficial solutions. Go deeper. Seek the roots of your problems in your own desires. Uncover them and then when you found the roots of that conflict, turn towards the gospel. Turn towards Christ. Uncover the sin and then address it with the gospel. We'll get there in a moment. James goes there. But first, uh, he, he begins by talking about the wreckage that selfish desires cause in our lives. And the first place he turns is the human cost of selfish desires. Namely, our selfish desires lead to broken relationships. James mentions several ways that our selfish desires do this. He refers to fighting, quarreling, envy, or coveting, and even murder, he says. The reference to murder is a bit stunning. <laughs> and if you read commentaries on it, you'll see people go different directions. It's a little difficult to make sense of. We may ask, does he, does he literally mean murder? I mean, was it? It's just possible that within the early churches, some conflict had bubbled over between believers and perhaps someone had killed someone else. It's a terrible thought. It's at least something we should wrestle with. I don't think that's what he means. I think, again, he's using hyperbole, the same way he spoke about wars, and he's referring to our own quarrels between us. I think he's referring to murder, and he's referring to the anger within us. Let me see if I can make the case for you. Jesus said something similar. If you know the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, you know Jesus did something very similar. He, he's, he's taking the law, the law of Moses, and he says, it's not enough for you just to kind of fulfill these written commandments. I want you to apply these things to your very heart. And so he says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not murder. And anybody who murders is liable to judgment. Jesus then goes above and beyond. He applies it to the heart and he says, but I say to you, 
that everyone who's angry with their brother or sister is liable to judgment. He's saying the same judgment that you think is called down on murder, I'm saying applies to anger. Jesus wants us to go deeper. It's not enough to say, well, I never killed anybody this last year. He says, no, no, go deeper in your own heart. Look for those desires. Is there anger in your heart? I think that's what James is doing here when he says you desire and do not have, so you murder. Perhaps there was murder. Probably, I think he's pointing out that the evil of argumentation, the evil of our own anger is worthy of the same punishment that murder deserves before God because it comes from the same root, anger. It's that same internal desire to punish others, to want to bring judgment against others. He has something like this in mind. Your selfish desires are so strong that they lead to this bitter fighting among you. It's the same roots that lead to murder. Either way, James meant, uh, whether he literally meant that there was physical murder or he's simply referring to the evil of anger, when we read this, we should be stunned. We should be stunned. That's his purpose. (laughs) Don't underestimate your own anger, brothers and sisters. Don't underestimate the causes of conflict in your own heart. They're very serious. Very serious. They are worthy of condemnation. And without a rescue, our own desires will lead to the total destruction of our relationships. That's what he's saying here. This stunning description should teach us not to excuse our own selfish desires, not to justify them. Don't underestimate just how evil they are. There is a real human cost to selfish desires, namely broken relationships. And if you're reading closely, I know what you're going to say. Uh, Doesn't he say in verse 2, though, that the problem is unmet desires? I mean, look there. Doesn't he say that the problem is actually just unmet desires? He says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. It's true. He does point to frustrated desires. He does point to unmet desires as the place where fighting occurs. But remember what he said in verse 1. He said, what causes these quarrels and fights? Is it not that your pleasures are at war within you all? It's our own desires within us. I think what he's saying is, yes, yes, these, these selfish desires do bubble over when they're unmet or when one person's desires uh, confront another person's desires and then there are frustrated desires on both sides. But that's just the place where this becomes visible. The real problem, the root problem, is your own desires. They only bubble over the surface when they turn into these fights, when they're unmet with each other. That's where you can see them. That's where you can identify them and diagnose them. And you should be asking these questions. But he's saying the real source is deeper. It's your own desires. And those selfish desires lead to broken relationships with other people. That's the human cost. But there's also a spiritual cost here as well. A spiritual cost to our selfish desires. Namely, thwarted prayers. Thwarted prayers. The way this works out is in two ways that our prayers can be thwarted. First, 
people seek to meet selfish desires in their own strength, and so they don't bother to ask God. They just don't bother to pray at all, he says. You see that at the end of verse 2. He says, you want things and you can't obtain them, and you don't have them because you don't ask for them. You don't have them because you don't ask for them. This is a bit surprising here, but I think the idea is something like this. We sometimes don't even bother to pray and ask for God's to give us the things that we want because we say, I can get it myself. <laughs> I have a strategy. I have a plan. I know how to accomplish what I want to do. And so we don't bother to ask God. In this sense, prayer is thwarted because we never bother to ask. And so our selfish desires are matched by self-reliance. Selfish desires find their outcome in self-reliance. In this is the first way that prayer is thwarted. Sometimes Christians don't bother to ask God. The second way that prayers uh, may be thwarted by selfish desires is because God says no to self-seeking prayer. Very simply, God says no to self-seeking prayer. Look at verse 3. James says, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your pleasures. He's come full circle now. He's talking about pleasures again, about our desires. And he says, uh, do, uh, do you see how these are specifically self-seeking desire, desires? He says sometimes we ask for these things because we want to spend it on ourselves. I mean, wow, that's a hard blow for a consumeristic society like ours. What are we, like seven days after Christmas? Sometimes we do want things just to spend them on ourselves. Make no mistake, God does hear these prayers. He just won't grant them. It's not that he's deaf. He hears those prayers, but he will say no to self-seeking prayers. God is not a genie who's obligated to grant every wish so long as it's worded precisely. And there are streams of Christianity that teach that, but I think the roots sometimes can be found in all of us, that same assumption. Many of us are able to quote Jesus' words in John 14, whatever you ask in my name, I'll do it, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Whatever you ask in my name, I, I will do it, Jesus says, that the Father may be glorified. And we, that, just, that just comes off our tongue so easily, and we assume, therefore, I can ask whatever I want. I'm a Christian. My desires are already pure. But we forget what Jesus says in the very next chapter. He says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Jesus does promise to do whatever we ask, provided we are fully grounded in him. And his words have root in us and are reshaping us to be like him so that our goals are the goals that God has for us, namely to produce fruit and to show that we're disciples of Christ, that we have been transformed, that we're not just like the people around us. We're not just self-centered, self-seeking, wanting for ourselves. If we're aligned with Jesus and shaped by his words, then of course he will answer our prayers, he says because it will glorify his father. How different this is from the person who's ruled by selfish desires. Jesus taught us to pray, Father, your will be done. 
your will be done. But many of us simply pray, my will be done, Father. And these prayers will be thwarted, James tells us. God will not answer selfish prayers. Well, we've seen how bad things can get. Selfish desires lead to broken relationships. They lead to thwarted prayers, prayers that are ignored. A broken relationship with people and a broken relationship with God. And James tells us the problem is not, it's not the people around you. It's not the tough circumstances you're in. The root problem is your own desires. And we carry these with us wherever we go. So when we talk about world weariness from the wars and conflicts and from the wars and conflicts in our own relationships, we should ponder this and we should want peace. That's why James asked this question. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? He wants us to understand these things. Some of us have no doubt found ourselves thinking at the end of the year as we're looking back at the year before. Why was it like that? Why this trouble? Why do we go round and round in the same circles again? Will this always be as we look forward to the new year? Is there no hope? <clears throat> I want to take you where James is going here. We're going to skip ahead a few verses, but look with me at chapter 4, verse 6. Same chapter, just verse 6. After describing the troubled situation for several more verses, James says this, But he, that is God, gives more grace. Now, if you're familiar with Scripture, I hope this just sounds to you like something you read all the time. He gives more grace. This is the sort of statement that we come across frequently, and it should feel to us, if you're a Christian, like coming home. Here's a promise of security and comfort for you. Here's a place where you can lay down your burden. Yes, there are troubles, troubles without and troubles within, but God gives more grace. Let me keep reading here. He gives more grace. James says, therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. What a promise. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And he already has. <laughs> That's the story of Christmas. The incarnation. We were far off from God, but he came to us. Even when we weren't seeking him, he came to us. The incarnation is the great proof of God's love. The great proof of God's love and the promise of forgiveness. Are you in need of help, brothers and sisters? Look no further. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Do you see within yourself these desires that become demands and then ruin relationships? Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. He will give, he will give you more grace. He will give you more grace. He will give it to you if you turn to him. 
He's already come to you. He's already drawn near to you. So you don't have to say, where do I find him? Where do I look? Where do I go? We look to Jesus who came to us to bring God close to us. If you are weary of your own fightings, look to the incarnation. Draw near to Jesus. Whatever you bring, whatever sins you've done, he promises to forgive. Whatever fighting you've come out of, he will give you more grace. And his gift, that's what grace means, is greater than your debts. That's what it means. He gives more grace. The word for more is, is greater than. He's giving something greater than what you bring. He gives more grace to forgive all your sins. But we have, of course, broken relationships as well. Husbands and wives, children with their siblings, little ones, a parent perhaps with a grown child, or if you're an adult, maybe a relationship with your parent that's broken, a tense relationship at the office that you're dreading going back to on Tuesday. The promise of greater grace is not just for forgiveness, it's also for transformation. It's for a restoration of peace in your life where there's now fighting. There can be an armistice. There can be a declaration of ceasefire. There can be a restoration of peace in your life. He gives more grace, so draw near to him. Jesus said, if my words abide in you and you remain in me, then he will answer these requests of ours. So draw near to him. And just consider who he was. He said, come to me, everyone who's weary, because I'm gentle and lowly. If you turn to Christ sincerely and draw near to him, you will be transformed by his words. If his words remain in you, this is a message for the new year. This is a message for those of us who are willing to turn, to make a turn in our lives <clears throat> excuse me, God's self-description in the Old Testament, the one that when he's asked, what do, you, what do you like? Reveal yourself to me, Moses says. God says, the Lord, the Lord, slow to anger, overflowing with unchanging, loyal love. That's who God is. And he promises to change us. He gives more grace if we will draw near to him. Our warring desires can be silenced and turned into peacetime. He can reshape those selfish desires so that we can say with a whole heart, just like Jesus said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Father, we do turn to you with both a weariness and also an eager expectation. Lord, at the beginning of this new year, we ask, be at work within us, please. Help us to draw near to you, not to stand far off, not to be self-satisfied, not to be self-reliant, not to be ruled by demands and selfish desires, but I pray that you would please work within each one here so that the words of Christ would reshape us and transform us so that our lives are not marked by conflict and fighting by argument and broken relationships, but so that they're marked by peacetime, that we would be those who sow in peace 
and make peace. Do this work among us, we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.